very good morning to you. There's always a little bit of terror when the presentation doesn't start as you suppose in a new place. We are very grateful uh, for the invitation to be with you. Looking forward to a week at Galilee with some young folks. Um, and I have to say that I, I, I much appreciated our time earlier this morning. It, it so happens that we are going to focus in on two Samaritans who Jesus makes good. Um, Jesus has this uh, habit. We see it in, in the God of the Old Testament, his father as well, to call people by a new name and transform them into that by, by his power, by his working. I was, I was struck this morning as we were thinking about what it meant to consider Christ um, and how that was the thing that, that changed things for that Samaritan leper. Uh, he was the one who came back to consider Christ. We, we might imagine how the others, they were considering the, the feeling in their appendages. Not, not a surprising thing to do if you've been healed and made whole, but it was uh, coming back to consider Christ, coming back to uh, gaze on him that made all the difference for that Samaritan. And here we're going to consider another Samaritan that Jesus approaches in John chapter 4. By way of explanation of that uh, process of making gobstopper video, um, in preaching through John's gospel for uh, first our, our youth at, at, at church at Bethany, and then later on with, with our Sunday morning congregation, I was really struck by John's gospel in the sense that we're, we're pretty clear that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are already widely available and in circulation at the time that John writes his biography of Jesus' life. And it struck me that there seemed to be an intentional um, move on the part of John to present a, a portrait of Jesus that shows his, um, his nature as being more provocative than we might sometimes tend to think of him as. Um, I, I, I was, by way of illustrating that, when I was younger, I had a Precious Moments Bible. Maybe some of you had a Bible like that, and there were these cartoons of the biblical characters, pictures of the characters, and they always had big, uh, big bright eyes, seemingly with a tear brimming in one of them. And sometimes we have that portrait of Jesus, that he's, he's mostly gentleness, and, and he is that. But in John's gospel, he repeatedly says things that are intentionally hard for people to accept. Sometimes they're hard to understand, or other times they're just hard to take. And Jesus doesn't seem to ever back away from that. He is um, piercing into people's lives um, in a way that is pronounced in John's gospel. And so I, I took that thrust to say that there are many hard sayings. And, and they, the benefit of those things, if we will mull them, if we will spend time considering why he would approach things in that provocative way at times, I think is, is great sweetness. Um, you can bite down on a jawbreaker, but it's, it's not a good idea. The best way to enjoy it is to, um, 
is to really uh, give it time to work in. And so, so many of the things in John's gospel are true in that way. Let's, let's read together from John chapter 4, and then we'll, uh, we'll begin to unpack some of these ideas in the story of Jesus encountering a Samaritan woman. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was, going, was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is that you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for, the salvation, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one you speak to, speaking to you, am he. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask him to illuminate it to our hearts. God, we are so grateful for the patterns that you create for us, that you invite us into. Time set aside to remember your son, to consider him. Time to open your word, to sing your praise. God, we just ask that you would shape us, that uh, like these Samaritans we've heard of today, that um, time spent um, 
focused in on you rather than on ourselves uh, would make us the kind of people that you can use powerfully for your kingdom. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus is busting all kinds of expectations in John chapter 4. It's it's common knowledge, I think, that this approach is scandalous for two reasons. The first is that in, in the culture of this first century in the Near East, um, a man, a single man approaching a single woman is, is not something that would be a regularly expected event. This is a scandalous thing that is happening. And yet we notice that Jesus is never unintentional about the things that he does. And so he is, he is creating that situation. Um, but also we, we would note, uh, as was noted earlier this morning, the ethnic hatred that exists between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so not only is this woman taken aback by Jesus' approach uh, while she is on her own, but also because he's a Jew and she is a Samaritan. Um, at the time uh, that this, we, we have this story of, of Jesus, it was common practice for Jews who were going from north to south or from south to north. Jesus regularly makes this trip from Galilee in the north down to Jerusalem to the big smoke um, for, for festivals that are part of Jewish life uh, or for teaching at the temple. And it would be common practice for many Jews to go far out of their way around Samaritan territory so as not to be contaminated by passing through Samaria on the way to the north. But Jesus doesn't take that route. He intends to go through Samaria. He allows the disciples to go on their way. He's not interested in purchasing lunch with them. He is creating an appointment with this woman. We know it's scandalous because the woman who we later find has had five husbands and is living with a man who's not her husband, she is scandalized. She's saying, what are you doing approaching me? What is going on here? Jesus is not, he's not worried about how this might appear. He's not worried about what his reputation will be. He's worried about interacting with this woman. He's creating an appointment. And by way of application, I think it's important for us to note that with Jesus, circumstances are never just circumstances, right? He didn't just have to go through Samaria because that's the way to get where he was going. He purposed to go to this place to meet this woman. And I think it's, it's, it should be clear to us that in following Jesus, we will be made uncomfortable at times by circumstances. There'll be things that we sort of go, I didn't imagine being here, and yet God has me here for a purpose. And often it will demand that we love people that we otherwise wouldn't. I think it's important to note that that's going to look different for all of us. Um, This was a pretty universal 
dislike between the the Samaritans and the Jews, we might not have that straightforward um, a problem with certain groups of people, but Jesus is going to draw us to situations where we might uh, be asked to um, to invite him into a conversation or an appointment to see those things as opportunities rather than obstacles. So often we're frustrated when our plans are thwarted, but Jesus makes this an appointment with this woman. But this encounter, it's laden with tension, not just because it's scandalous, but also because there's this, um, there's this weight to this particular type of situation. It's not immediately apparent to us as modern readers, I don't think, but I think for Jesus' immediate audience, there's a sort of uh, magic in the air. This is the place where romance happens. Now, we don't think of the well as a romantic place, but as you'll see from this small clip, sometimes romance happens in unexpected places. So in our culture, we have unexpected places where love might occur. I think for Jesus' audience, and maybe we should consider that there's also this, yeah, there's this tension in the air because wells are the place where romance happens biblically very often. Uh, think of the examples. Uh, Abraham sends a servant uh, to go get a wife for Isaac. And where does he encounter her? At the well. And she waters his animals. Then we have Moses, of course, right? Fleeing Egypt. And he encounters his wife and her sisters at the well. And romance springs up and then of course the namesake of this well the illusion that's referenced by john in his gospel is jacob who encounters his second wife rachel at the well and he is smitten he's overwhelmed by love for her maybe we do have this idea in our culture i think sometimes we call it the watering hole when people go to a particular establishment in order to meet and mingle. And so there's this expectation, there's this tension in the air for people who are hearing the story, for the disciples who are returning to find Jesus. They're thinking, what is going on here? So Jesus is not just busting the expectations of his culture and of his ethnicity, but he's also busting the expectation of what an encounter looks like, what love is. We can guess from the nature of the story that this woman has a, a terrible reputation in her town. We know she's going to, gather, to get water on her own in the heat of the day. And so we're, we're, we can pretty easily understand that she's not uh, in good standing with the other women in her community. And Jesus chooses her for a love encounter, but it's not a romantic one. She says to him, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? And the answer is this resounding yes, amen. Jesus is the greater Jacob in so many ways, but particularly when we think about this way, the kind of love pursuit that Jesus is on. Remember, Jacob 
he meets Rachel and he's so undone, he's so smitten that he goes to her father, who's also a schemer, right? Just like Jacob himself. And he says, I'll work seven years for the opportunity to marry her. Now, this was a dramatic uh, overestimate in terms of the proper payment, right? He's overshooting the dowry by a big bit, but he doesn't care. You know, it's this, I'll work a thousand years. I would walk 500 miles and I would walk 500 more, right? And then he works those years for the love of Rachel and receives Leah unexpectedly. The schemer gets schemed on. That's how in love Jacob is. The guy who is cheating his brother out of his birthright, who is, who is, um, pulling the wool over his father's eyes, literally, I suppose. Um, he is so in love and so uh, discombobulated that it doesn't even occur to him what his new father-in-law Laban is scheming. And so Jacob works seven years for the love of Rachel, for his own desire, and then he works another seven for Laban's wickedness. And this woman says to Jesus, are you greater than Jacob? And I think this is a picture of how much Jesus pursues, the kind of love that drives him to do this work that he is doing. When the the disciples come back and say, aren't you hungry? He says, no, I've got plenty to eat. I've got plenty keeping me satisfied. I'm here for this work. I'm here for my 14 years. I'm here to work because of your wickedness. I'm here to pursue and love. Jesus' romance is so much greater. And I think the picture is intentional. So often we get excited about being forgiven, and so we should. But this idea shows us that what Jesus is offering is more than pardon. It's not less. It's not, it's not less than saying your sins are forgiven, you're free to go. But what scripture teaches us is that Jesus, he gives us his righteousness. He gives us the second seven years in place of our disobedience. He gives us his obedience. The big idea is called justification. Uh, in, in Paul's letter to the Romans, we get a lot of ideas about this. Jesus had God's favor. He came in perfect obedience, and then he died to pay for our disobedience and gave us his record if we'll accept it. So that when the accuser comes to us, when, when we are tempted to get inside our own head like this particular woman, his medals are pinned on our chest. Second Corinthians says it like this, if I can remember to advance the slide. There we go. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you you feel like the righteousness of God? This is what we're being offered. This is what justification means. 
Paul says to the Romans, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between the Jew and the Gentile or the Samaritan. Right? It's his record that he gives. His love is so much greater. Is he greater than Jacob in every way? This is more than forgiveness. I, I remember playing Monopoly with my daughter as a way of sort of illustrating this idea of just getting something so much beyond what we could imagine was possible. And we're, we're I, I guess she hadn't played Monopoly many times before. She was quite small. And she rolls the dice and lands on chance. And she, she, she reads the chance card and it says, you have a get out of jail free. And I was sort of like, dear, this is great. Like, you, you don't know this yet, but, but treasure chest is actually the better option than chance because more, there's more beneficial cards. And so you really lucked out to get this get out of jail free card. And she said, dad, I didn't want get out of, get, get out of jail free. I wanted move to Marvin Gardens. I said, dear, that's not a card. That's not a real thing that you can have. But what Jesus is showing us here is that it's not just get out of jail free. It's, it's move into this position that just totally seems unfathomable, seems unimaginable. And that's what he's about to do with this woman, right? He not only forgives her, he not only, he not only says you're off the hook for those failed relationships, for that dysfunction and brokenness that is weighing you down, that is ruining your life and maybe the lives of others as well but you're justified like you can go out with this message of what that that I've brought you to other people and her community is transformed it's a big deal but first we have to get at the most interesting hard saying maybe in the whole gospel of John it's one of the reasons I found this sort of lens for looking at John's gospel and am excited to teach about it. In verse 15 and 16, Jesus does the oddest thing. He says the strangest thing. He, he explains to the woman this idea that he's got living water that she doesn't understand, uh, that is satisfying in a way that the water she's drawing from the well cannot be. And so she says, as one would, Okay, give it to me. Tell me where I get it. Bring it. Let me have it. And what does Jesus do? He gives her a non sequitur, right? That's Latin and it means it doesn't follow. She says, give me the living water. He says, go and get your husband, right? Like that's not the expected answer to the question. And this is the hard saying. We know that her, it cuts her to the quick because she follows with her own sort of nonsensical answer. Jesus says, go get your husband. And she follows up by saying, uh, after, after Jesus shows that he knows that she has had five husbands and she's living with a man who's not her husband, she says, I see that you're a prophet. Now let's have a discussion about the proper place of worship in this region. 
right? She wants to get into doctrinal idiosyncrasies because she doesn't want to deal with the subject at hand when Jesus pulls this idea onto the table. When he says, go get your husband, let's talk about what's really going on in your life. She wants to um, push that question away. She'd rather talk about anything else. In fact, I think it's incredibly gracious that Jesus even deals with that concern when he's bringing, about, bringing up this much more major issue. We know that he's hit the mark because she wants to change the subject. What Jesus is doing here is explaining a really important part of this equation. In order to receive this living water, she's going to have to do some deconstruction. She's going to have to tear down the other well that she's been going to, right? Jesus puts his finger on the thing in her life where she, the place where she has gone for meaning and significance to know that she belongs and is special. And here we see this really challenging idea because there's nothing wrong with wanting to be loved. There's nothing wrong with wanting a family and a good relationship. These are good things. And that's the trouble with idols. So often, they're not, I mean, they can be vicious things in and of themselves, right? We all know uh, people who are trapped in addiction to things that everyone else can see are ruining them, that are just bad in and of themselves. But more often, we construct our idols to things that are good, that everyone agrees are beneficial, right? In the Old Testament, people uh, alongside the Jewish people were building idols to fertility, to the success of the crops, to the sunshine, right? There's nothing wrong with sunshine unless we put it in God's place. And then we can't receive the living water. It's why Hallmark can keep making this same movie over and over again. Let me give you some idea. Anyway, you get the idea that Hallmark is just making the same film over and over again because we have this drive within us. Um, and I could just as easily uh, take the example of the fellas and you know we could watch Gladiator and think about um, what it would mean to just run through a wall for glory and honor and those things that drive, in some cases, men's hearts, those things that we set ourselves upon. Um, and, and the issue is, in order to be satisfied by the living water, you have to reject other sources, right? They have to be put in their proper priority. There's, as, I, as we said, there's nothing wrong with pursuing relationship, with wanting romance and a sense of belonging. There's nothing wrong with wanting the love of a husband and desiring the joy that comes from family, unless it's in the place where the giver of life, unless it doesn't acknowledge that those things are gifts from the creator rather than the, the thing that gives ultimate significance in and of itself. These aren't bad things that she wants. They're just good things that she's made ultimate. And so Jesus says, look, you've been coming to this other well over and over 
and yet you're still thirsty. Right? Come, come drink the water that I have to give you. The problem with idols is that idols don't love us. They don't offer grace. They're just things that we look towards, and there's no care from the idol what happens with us. Uh, Jonah talks about it this way, sort of semi-ironically. Jonah 2, he says, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Another translation says they forfeit their grace. You can't have, like syncretism is not an option. We can't have two things in the one spot that God belongs in. And we know an idol when it wants to act as our Lord and Savior, the thing to which we would give all our devotion, the thing... Uh, one of the ways to know is when a thing is robbed from us or threatened, what does our reaction look like? The Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians calls this epithumia, over-desire, right? When that thing is threatened, how do we respond? Do we lose ourselves in anger or despair when we can't have that thing? That's how we know. And the problem with an idol as well is that it's a double-edged sword, it actually doesn't really matter so much whether we're very good at attaining those things or not. Here we see an example of a woman who's, we would call her very unfortunate in love, right? She's, she's trying the same thing over and over again and not having the kind of success that she desires. And so for people in that mode, when we don't achieve the thing, when we, when we can't have that thing that we believe will give us love and meaning and significance in place of Christ, we're crushed. But it's also possible to be very good at pursuing idols, to getting the things that everybody thinks will give you a, a life of significance and importance. And when that happens, we become hard. We become self-righteous and smug looking at others and thinking, well, it's because they're less that they don't have their family together in precisely the way I do, right? It starts to become about our work. Uh, I, I've, I've wrestled with this myself at times where, you know, God's blessings become about things that we've done. If you look around and you're surrounded by a loving family of people who are following Christ, that is because of the work of Jesus. He's the one who purchases that. And so it's so important that we purge these idols, whether, we are, whether we're good at pursuing them or not, we're all doing it. And Jesus comes with these hard sayings. He comes to put his finger on the very thing. Um, that's why he's so provocative. That's why he won't just make the small talk. It's only the gospel that offers what we would, would call humble confidence. At the same time, we recognize that but for the grace of God, we are, we're, we're depraved. We, there's nothing in us that would be redeeming. But then we see Jesus' pursuit of us. We see what it cost him in order to purchase us, and we are exalted to the skies. What kind of value do we have? The gospel says that we are so bad in ourselves 
that Jesus had to die for us, but it also says at the same time that we are so loved and so valued that Jesus was glad to die for us. And this woman's life is transformed. She becomes the spring of living water. It wells up inside her. She becomes a channel of life to others. Uh, further into the chapter, she's, she's the first sort of genuine missionary, right? Imagine the disciples coming back around Jesus. They're the ones who've been in the training program, and they don't see the harvest yet. Jesus is saying, look around you. There are all these people. There's all these people who need this message. And who am I sending out? The very last person anybody could imagine, right? The good Samaritan. He makes her Jesus. He, he takes a woman who has the worst position. He uses the weak to shame the strong. He uses the foolish to shame the wise. He exalts the humble and he opposes the proud. Why? So that we'll know that it's him, right? That's the gospel. The gospel is that the disciples who are themselves an example of the weak be shaming the strong, Jesus says, no, 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 I can, do, I can do more than that. I can remove more soldiers from Gideon's forces. I can do it with less. Anyone who will come and drink this water, who will reject their other springs, I will turn them into a fountainhead. I will make water, living water flow out of their lives that will change the nations. Jesus has chosen her and he's used her in this powerful way. Unlike the other men in her lives, unlike the lesser, the, 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 those of us who are just regular fellows, he loves her for herself in spite of her flaws. He's not loving her for anything he can get from her. And she's able to respond in kind because she experiences that first act of altruism, right? He's doing the only good deeds that have ever been done, that have no selfish motivation. That's the thing that creates this response in us. That's the thing that transforms. Lastly, how, how can he just do this? How, how can it satisfy the math of justice for him to just choose the worst and then make her the most well we know that he's the person who has this living water he's the source right but when he comes to die for her and for us he's on the tree and he says i thirst right god himself says i want I, I, I am looking towards something that will satisfy, but right now I've, I'm deprived. I don't have that sense of the love from everlasting in the bosom, in the bosom of the Father, the glory that, that the triune God experienced in relationship forever. He let go of that security in order to satisfy us, in order to give us what we don't deserve. We read from Isaiah this morning, actually, we're going to read the same verses to highlight the idea that Jesus is pleased with this transaction. 
Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Isaiah is telling us that Christ looks at this arrangement where he gives himself for us, where he thirsts in order to give us this living water, and he is satisfied. Hebrews says that he looked on this trial that he was headed into, and for the joy set before him, he endured the cross for that satisfaction. And so then the question is, what is the thing that satisfies him this way? He had the love of the Father and the Spirit. He had glory from everlasting. What did he not have? It's us. That's the love that transforms. That's the thing that changes everything. This is, this is the gospel that Jesus is satisfied. And that's how he satisfies us. Let's pray and thank him this morning. God, we love you. And we thank you for the privilege of being together under the sound of your word. God, we ask that you would help us to assume the right position in regards to your word. So often, Father, we want to come analytically um, and, and to um, pour over your word. And yet you ask us to come and allow it to do its work on us, to, to submit ourselves to your word, to trust that it is alive and active, that it's ready to pierce to the heart of us. God, thank you that we can trust you, that you give us this good news, that you are only bringing about these operations, that you're only provoking in love. God, we ask that you would help us to have that confidence as we head into the week that you've prepared for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.